Hello and a very warm welcome to the Word Live podcast. My name is Nigel Bynan, I'm the director of Word Live, and I'm really pleased you've chosen to join us. This podcast is going to play out some of the great talks we've had at past events. We'll publish one each Monday and we really hope and pray that it will bless and encourage you. We're going to start with some talks by Vaughan Roberts on the book of Job. These are so helpful in how we handle the suffering we can experience and where we find God is in all of that. I hope that it helps you in your walk with the Lord. So here's a reading from Job and then Vaughan. So Job 8. Then Bildad the Shuite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. Ask the former generation and find out what their ancestors learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What they trust in is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. They lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it does not hold. They are like a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its shoots over the garden. It entwines its roots around a pile of rocks and looks for a place among the stones. But when it is torn from its spot, that place disowns it and says, I never saw you. Surely its life withers away, and from the soil other plants grow. Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame and the tents of the wicked will be no more. Well, morning, everyone. We cricket fans are in mourning today. I really thought they were going to do it. 19 runs of six balls. Impossible. Um, Tom Schreiner, who's an American speaker, um, noticed I was looking a bit depressed last night. He asked why, and I said, it's all to do with cricket. And he looked very confused. And I said, you better get used to it. You'll be playing it in heaven. And um, <laughs> in heaven, England are going to win. Every time. Anyway, Word Alive should encourage us. It's a wonderful title, isn't it? Word Alive. Great uh, Charles Spurgeon, the... Baptist preacher in the 19th century was preaching open air one day and to get a crowd he put a top hat down on the ground and he started pointing at it with a quivering finger. It's alive! It's alive! And the crowd gathered wondering what would be underneath this top hat. What kind of creature would be there? It's alive! And he lifted up the top hat and there of course was a Bible. It's alive. I hope you've discovered the living power of the Word of God. I discovered it at the age of 17, 18, just as I was about to leave school. Various things happened that prompted me to read the Bible. I read Matthew's Gospel, not expecting it to be true, not expecting my life to be transformed, and yet I discovered the living power of the Word of God. It was as if the Lord Jesus walked off the pages and into my life. And I hope you've discovered, as the Bible is preached, you're hearing the voice of the living God. What a privilege it is to have a few days hearing God speak. And how we need his voice. 
in a world of such mess and pain. Let's pray as we begin. Loving Father, your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And we pray that through that living word now, you would speak to us, strengthen us, rebuke us where that's needed, encourage us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Ben Chambers was a young American. His dream for a number of years had been to serve Christ on a missions trip in South America. And now it was about to come to fruition. He reached the airport, and just before he got on the plane, he thought he'd better leave a note for his mother. It was before text messages or anything like that. And he realized he didn't have a bit of paper. It was too late to buy a postcard. He had an envelope and a stamp, but nothing to write on. And there on the floor, he noticed an advert. And there was one word in the middle of the advert in large capital letters, W-H-Y, and then some spare white paper around the margins. He picked it up, and he wrote his last note to his mother before he got on the plane, wishing her all the best, stuffed it in the envelope, posted it, got on the plane. The plane crashed into the Colombian mountains. Everyone on board died. The envelope reached his mother after she'd heard the terrible news of her son's death. And as you can imagine, that word, why, burned at her from the page. Why? It's a question we are bound to ask in the light of the suffering in the world. It's a philosophical question. God, why do you let all this happen? It's a very personal and deeply felt question. God, why have you let this happen to me? Or often even harder, why have you let this happen to that loved person? And I can't do anything about it. Why? And we know the answer, at least in this instance, a little bit. Job doesn't. Job is confused as to what's been happening in his life. And if you were here yesterday, as we looked at Job 1 and 2, you'll realize there were lots of reasons for Job to ask the question, why? One blow after another. He goes from riches to rags in the space of a few minutes. He loses his wealth. He loses his children. He loses his health. He loses his dignity. He ends up on the ash heap. That's the rubbish tip out of town, as far as we can tell, driven out there by the respectable neighbors, not wanting to be polluted by him with his disease, by him with his dubious morals, at least they're drawing that conclusion, he must be a very sinful man indeed for him to suffer like this. Job doesn't know what's going on. Why? We've been let into the secret. We've seen behind the scenes and that extraordinary scene in Job 1 and again in Job 2 of God engaging with Satan. And God saying, oh, Job's a very righteous man. And Satan saying, oh, no, he doesn't really love you. He just likes what you give him. Take away the gifts and he'll soon curse you to your face. Satan's attack is not just on Job and his integrity. It's attack on God and on his honor. Job is the most righteous man in the world. If even Job doesn't love God simply for God's sake, but only for the things that he gives him, then that means no one really loves God. And what kind of God is that? And God, we saw, is proved right. And Job speaks those amazing words at the end of chapter 1. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Amazing trust, especially as he still doesn't know the answer to the question, why? God doesn't tell him, and his friends don't help him. Do you remember they come and sit alongside him? And there they sit silently for seven days and seven nights. And then at last, it's Job who breaks the silence. 
He speaks in that terrible lament in chapter 3. And that chapter is full of the question, why? It's there in verse 11. Why did I not perish at birth? It's there in verse 12. Why were there knees to receive me? It's there in verse 20. Why is light given to those in misery? It's there in verse 23. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? It's said that it's not so much suffering that destroys a person. It's suffering without meaning. Why? Previously, it was Job's appearance that had made them sad. But now his words make them angry. So in chapter 4, at last, one of them speaks. His name is Eliphaz. Eliphaz, the Temanite, replies to Job's lament in chapter 3, if someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? He's really saying, I I just can't listen to this anymore, Job. I've listened patiently, but now I've got to say something. And here's a man who's very disturbed, not just by Job's lack of theological understanding, as far as he's concerned, but even more by the tone of what Job is saying. He seems to be questioning God. Eliphaz is the first of the friends to speak in the book of Job. And it begins a cycle. One friend speaks, Job replies. The second friend speaks, Job replies. The third friend speaks, Job replies. Then comes a second cycle. Then a third cycle, which just fizzles out. doesn't quite get to the end. It's as if they've got nothing more to say. They've been repeating themselves, and they just keep quiet after that. And then appears a fourth friend. He's called Elihu. And he speaks for six chapters, which are unanswered by Job. So this is the main section of the book. It stretches from chapter 4 all the way through to chapter 37. It's in poetry. Job's so-called comforters speaking to him. And Job responding. That's a lot of material. And there would be value in looking at it chapter by chapter. My friend and colleague at the Proclamation Trust, Christopher Ash, has written a superb commentary that's been advertised from the front on the book of Job. And you might think, how are you going to sustain interesting and useful comment on a book that goes on for so long and says much the same thing over and over again? I can tell you, Christopher does it brilliantly. John Woodhouse, the former principal of Moore College in Sydney, said in my hearing last year, this is the best commentary I've ever written, uh, ever read, I should say. That would be an arrogant thing to say. (laughs) It's superb. I do encourage it. It it would be quite a long series, wouldn't it, to preach through Job chapter by chapter. You could do it. One Puritan preached through the book of Job for 13 and a half years. He didn't get to the end. He died before he he finished. Uh, History doesn't relate how big the congregation was by the end of his ministry. We're limiting ourselves in this brief survey of the book of Job to just one study on Job's comforters. And I've chosen to zoom in on chapter 8, and we'll get there in a moment. One or two verses just to notice before we get to chapter 8. Eliphaz sets the tone. Here he speaks in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Here's the theology of the comforters in a nutshell. 4, verse 7. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. We were introduced yesterday to moralism. That's the understanding of these so-called comforters. You reap what you sow. And Job, right through these central chapters, again and again and again, reacts with growing frustration. He knows that their tidy theological system simply doesn't fit the facts of his life. He's more and more frustrated with them, and he's more and more frustrated with God as well. 
Just flick to chapter 7 and verse 17. Here's a very daring echo of Psalm 8. What is mankind that you make so much of them, that you give them so much attention? Do you remember Psalm 8? It's a, it's a wonderful psalm where the psalmist speaks with awe at the amazing nature of God's creation. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider your heavens, the moon and the stars, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? He's saying, wow, you're so great and you care about little me? It blows my mind. And Job, it seems, quite deliberately is echoing Psalm 8. And he's saying, why do you care about me? I really wish you didn't, God. Haven't you got the rest of the universe to be dealing with? Just leave me alone, please. Why are you mindful of me? Verse 18, that you examine me every morning and test me in every moment. Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? It's daring stuff. He's so frustrated. Get off my back, God. He knows God is in control. But that brings no comfort. He can't make any sense of what God is doing. Why? And so we come to chapter 8. We're going to take this as a representative chapter. This is the kind of material that you'll find again and again through these central chapters. Bildad begins, chapter 8, verse 2. How long will you say such things, Job? Your words are a blustering wind. You're speaking hot air, Job. You don't know what you're talking about. You're speaking nonsense. And Bildad thinks that because he's horrified that as far as he's concerned, Job is questioning what is a fundamental truth. We have in chapter 8 what is, in effect, a classic three-point sermon. It's very well structured. It's got a clear conclusion at the end. So here's point one in Bildad's sermon notes. A declaration of principle. That's verses 3 to 7. Verse 3, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Well, that's not designed to be a tricky question to answer. It's rather like um, the question Jesus asked, do you remember? Which of you fought your fathers? If your son comes to you just before his birthday and says, Dad, I want a goldfish, which of you fathers will delight to put in a glass bowl a scorpion or a snake. If, if on Easter Sunday your son says, Dad, I'd love a boiled egg, which of you are going to put a scorpion in the egg cup? You're just not going to do that. Again, it's not a tricky question. You're not discussing with each other. Now, how many dads would do that? Well, 1%, 2%, no, 6%. It's unthinkable. And so it's unthinkable that God could ever pervert justice. Human judges get verdicts wrong. Some of them might be corrupt, bribed, or else they're limited. They make mistakes. They don't know all the facts. They try the best they can, maybe, but they don't always get it right. But not God. God is incorruptible. He's absolutely holy and just. And he knows everything. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He's never confused about the facts. And so he always acts with absolute justice. That is fundamental, the declaration of principle. It follows, therefore, that God's judgments are always right. And Bildad draws a conclusion from that, verse 4. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Now that is not pastorally sensitive. Do you remember what happened? They've all died in a moment. And Bildad's saying, look Job, I didn't want to go here. 
I was silent for a long time. I wasn't going to raise this with you. But as you keep pushing against God, I need to point out what is manifestly the case. I mean, some parents are fooled by kids, aren't they? You want to feel the best about them, but let's face facts. They were clearly very sinful indeed. They might have been outwardly godly, but what happened to them? Well, that proves they were not godly. Unless you want to question the justice of God. No, I didn't think you'd want to do that. That's, that's unquestionable. They've all died, and therefore, they all must be godly. Uh, ungodly, they're sinful. Because God's judgments are always right. But Joe, when there's life, there's hope. And so Bildad addresses him, verse 5. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, and let's face it, Job, the current facts suggest otherwise, don't they? Because you're suffering greatly, which is a pretty clear implication that you're very sinful. But if, as you claim, you are pure and upright, well, God is just, we know that, and so we can be absolutely sure, even now, he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. That's the declaration of principle. It's a very neat, tidy system. You read what you sow. God is just. Second heading in his sermon notes, an appeal to tradition. Verses 8 to 10. For the rest of the chapter, he really undergirds the principle and backs it up. And here he does back that up with an appeal to tradition. Verse 8. Ask the former generations... Find out what their ancestors learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing. And our days on earth are but a shadow. I mean, don't take it from me, Joe, but what would we know? Here today, gone tomorrow. Now learn from the wisdom of the ages, verse 10. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Joe, I could take you to my study. I've got lots and lots of books. And loads of them from the great ones of the past, they're all saying the same thing. They agree with me. Job, have you, have you written a book on suffering? No, I didn't, didn't think you had, no. Oh, just remind me, Job, actually, where, where did you get your theology degree from? No. Oh, you, oh, you didn't? No, 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 sorry, I shouldn't have asked the question. Well, what would you know, frankly? What, what makes you think that you are right? And the wisdom of the ages has got it wrong. How dare you? Are you really going to stand up against all of them? That's his appeal to tradition. And then point three in his sermon notes, again backing up the principle. An illustration from nature. Verses 11 to 19. We're told to illustrate our talks when we speak. Well, Bildad does that very well. Verse 11, can papyrus grow tall when there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water while still growing and uncut? They wither more quickly than grass. Papyrus needs the right conditions. So in damp, swampy ground, it will grow very quickly, up to 8 or 10 feet in no time at all. But if there's no water, papyrus will very quickly wither and die. And Bildaz says it's exactly the same for the godless. Verse 13, such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. They flourish for a while, but without God, they soon wilt, just as the papyrus wilts without water. They look to things that can't bear their weight, verse 15. They lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it doesn't hold. Like the climber going climbing with a, a rope made out of spider's web. It will not hold their weight. It's very powerful visual language, which illustrates the fate of those who turn from God. They'll be judged. And so comes the conclusion. 
verses 20 to 22. Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. We're back to where we began. Fundamental principle. God is just. We know that. And so we can be absolutely sure He won't reject one who is blameless. If you really are blameless, let's give you the benefit of the doubt for a moment, Job. If you really are, then what you're going through is a minor blip. And you can be absolutely sure he will not strengthen the hands of evildoers. He's just. Verse 21, let's give you the benefit of the doubt then. If you are just as you claim to be, he will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. If not, as the facts strongly suggest, you're getting exactly what you deserve. Either way, Job, stop questioning his justice. Well, there's Bildad's sermon. What do you make of it? I teach people to preach, and uh, alongside giving lectures on preaching, I'll give each one of them an opportunity to preach, and then I'll, I'll listen to it and then give them some feedback. And uh, I always like to begin with something positive. It's, it's normally easy, sometimes not entirely easy. There was one occasion when um, I used to send people to my aunt's church, and I'd ring my aunt on the Sunday evening to hear how it went. And I said, how was it? And she said, well, it was interesting. And I said, why? She said, well, he spent most of the sermon warning against the dangers of clubbing. She said, which... Um, surprised me a little because I couldn't see any of that in the passage and I was the youngest member of the congregation aged 70. (laughs) So I struggled a little bit saying something uh, positive. Maybe I said something, your your voice came across really clearly and, uh, and strongly. This is not a hard sermon to find positive things to say about. There's much that's very good in Bildad's sermon. Presentation, high marks. It's a very well-constructed sermon. One clear point, really driven home, well-illustrated, well-expressed. This is superb poetry. Do not caricature these guys. One of the reasons the book of Job works so well is that the comforters, so-called, speak so much that is right, and they speak it so well. You have, in these central chapters of Job, some of the greatest poetry of the ancient world. It's brilliantly expressed. And it's not just well said. Much of what is said is true. There are lots of ticks in the theological column. Don't denounce them too quickly. Don't demonize them. Certainly don't caricature them. Don't imagine we could never do anything like this because we really could. If you look at what they're saying... There's plenty in the Old Testament that says something really very similar. Within the wisdom tradition of the book of Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs is saying there are two paths through life. And if you, if you live a godly life, that's the wise way to live. It's the way of blessing. If you go the other way through life, that's uh, the foolish way to live. It's the way of curse. Think of Psalm 1. Trust in God and you'll flourish like a tree planted by streams of water. Turn from God and you'll be judged. There's much that is parallel with this speech. And yet, Job listens to Bildad and the other comforters, so-called. And he says famously in chapter 16, miserable comforters are you all. Now, you might say that's because he was, he was depressed. And it's true, sometimes when people are very low, it doesn't matter what you do, it's not well received. It's, it's, it doesn't help. You try to be nice and you say, well, can I go and get your shopping for you? And the response might come, what, are you saying I'm in, inadequate? Do you think I can't go shopping? Or you take some cut flowers. You think that'll cheer them up. And they say, oh, you killed them. They'll just die now. They were so much better in the garden. And so that's what's going on. Here are these nice people trying to be helpful, and Job says, miserable comforters are you all. No, God agrees with his verdict. Right at the end of the book, 
In chapter 42, God speaks to Eliphaz, it's in verse 7, and he says, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right. And even if much of what they said is technically, theologically right, they've applied it in wooden, inappropriate and insensitive ways. And for the rest of our time, I want us to learn from what they got wrong. So we don't repeat it as we seek to comfort others, as I very much hope we will. There are three features that they lacked. First, they lacked reality. They should have been shaken by Job's denial that his suffering is deserved. That should have got them thinking. It should have got them re-examining their assumptions. But instead of getting them thinking, instead of shaking them, it shocks them. It never occurs to them to question their theological system. You might have come across the writings of James Dobson, the American writer, who's written lots of books on parenting and so on. He, he, he wrote this. I used to have four theories on child rearing and no children. I now have four children and no theories. But the friends are really saying to Job, Job, don't confuse us with the facts. Our minds are made up. Have you heard of Procrustes with his Procrustean bed in Greek mythology? If the, get, if the guests didn't fit the bed, he would either stretch them or he'd lop bits of their bodies off so that they perfectly fitted the bed. And the friends are rather like that with their procrustean theological system. If reality doesn't fit the system, then it's got to be adapted. The system doesn't change. Reality must change. The facts must change. Job simply cannot be innocent because he suffers. And yet we know he is. They make the mistake of making laws out of Proverbs. Remember, Job comes from the wisdom tradition. And one important element of the wisdom tradition is a whole series of proverbial sayings. We've got many of them preserved for us in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs are generalized statements made on the basis of observed reality, encapsulated in pithy sayings. There's, There's great help in Proverbs. They just say in a nutshell something about life. But it's a big mistake to read them as if they're laws, as if they always, always apply. I mean, even reading through the book of Proverbs, there should be a a warning that we're not meant to read it like that. Let me read to you two Proverbs. They come straight after each other. Proverbs 26, verse 4, goes like this. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. You think there's, there's wisdom there. I mean, there's a time just not to speak. Here's this idiot spouting away. And if you get involved, if you say anything, you'll just be dragged down into an argument and made you look foolish as well. Won't do him any good. Just let him be. That's what Proverbs 26 verse 4 says. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. But then listen to Proverbs 26 verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. It's the complete opposite. It's saying, for goodness sake, don't let him go on spouting, because if you don't say something, he'll carry on thinking that he's entirely right and he'll never be corrected. You've got to speak. Now, which is right? The point is, a proverb is not a law, it's designed to get you thinking. And as you look at those two proverbs which seem to contradict each other, you've got to ask the question, now which circumstance am I in in this situation? If I speak, will it do any good? If not, just let him be. Or if I don't speak, will actually that be harmful? Maybe this is a situation I need to speak. It's a proverb, not a law. The proverbs have rightly reflected on the moral order in the universe and recognized that, generally speaking, 
If you live in a godly way, life will go better for you, generally speaking. If you live in an ungodly way, if you treat people badly, if you lie to them, they're not going to trust you. It won't go quite so well for you, generally speaking. But these are not laws. And yet, these so-called comforters treat them as if they are laws. You get proverbs in every culture. A watched pot never boils. Did your granny tell you that? Maybe you've you've gone to university to study science and you've been told that you you shouldn't take anything without testing. And see that I'm going to test this proverb. So I'm going to put a pot on the oven. I'm just going to watch to see. I'm not going to take my eye off it. And you watch and you find it does boil. And you go to granny and say, granny, you were completely wrong. A watch pot does boil. You've missed the point, haven't you? And yet they are literalists. They're, They're taking everything as if it's an absolute law. They want simple answers. That's their way of coping with a messy world. And Job recognizes that. He says as much in chapter 6, verse 21. Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. It's as if he's saying, my suffering challenges your system. And that terrifies you. Because everything is threatened if I'm innocent. If I'm innocent, then as far as you're concerned, that seems to question the justice of God. And that would mean nothing certain. And the whole foundations of the universe would collapse. And rather than face that possibility, you want to shut your eyes to reality. Certain personality types are especially prone to this kind of straight line, over simple way of thinking. They're the neat and tidy lot. You look in the sock drawer and that they're all in perfect pairs. You look at their bookshelves, and they don't order it by author, because that doesn't look neat. So all the black books, and then the red books, and all the books of a certain size, and it's all nicely squared off. And their doctrines can all be in order too. Everything fits in a satisfying logic. They've got a confident answer to everything. But... The Bible says it's not always like that. Oh, yes, there is certainty. And all of us have personality types that that, that have dangers and strengths attached. There are some who are, they delight in in, uh, unknowing, they delight in confusion. It's, It's a danger for some personality types who just enjoy angst. And they need to be reminded, actually, in the midst of a confusing world, there are certainties you can have. But there are others who need to be reminded, there are confusions. We don't have all the answers. There is no one explanation in the Bible for why people suffer. Just think about it. Joseph, why did he suffer? Certainly not because of his sin. He refused to sleep with Potiphar's wife. And for that act of moral righteousness, he ends up in jail. And at the end of it, after huge suffering, triggered, of course, by the terrible betrayal by his own brothers who sell him to slaves, he meets the brothers and they're terrified he's going to kill them. And he said, no, don't worry. You meant to harm me, but God meant it for good. To save many lives. God was in control of it all. It was all designed to ensure that I was in the right place at the right time so that I could ensure that the Egyptians had plenty of food so that when you guys came from Judah, you could survive. And the whole gospel, therefore, moves forward because the people of God remain intact. That's why Joseph suffered. What about Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament? Why did they suffer? Oh, they were killed because they lied. They lied before God. What about the man born blind in John chapter 9? People came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, who who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born like this? Jesus says, I tell you neither. This happened that the work of God might be displayed in him. What about Paul's thorn in the flesh 
2 Corinthians 12. He says it's a messenger of Satan. It came from the devil. But even that doesn't answer it. Yes, the devil was involved, but also wonderfully God was involved. And God allowed this thorn in the flesh to come because he knows that his strength is made perfect in weakness. There's no one answer to the question, why does suffering happen? Don't oversimplify. In a book I wrote, I wrote a chapter about depression. And uh, amongst other things, I encouraged those who were going through difficult and, and deep depression to make sure that they sought medical help. I said that it's, it's an illness. And the doctors can help, and medication can help. And someone read this, and she, she was angry, and she wrote to me. And she said, um, can't you just recognize that depression is because of sin? It's sin. And, and you're masking it by talking about uh, seeking medical help or, 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 or the possibility of medication. Actually, what people need to recognize is, is that they need to face up to sinful patterns of thinking... And then they might have a chance of, of being healed of, of this d- depression. Now that might well have been an overreaction to a kind of teaching that says look, that there's not, nothing to do with how we think and, and wrong thinking is involved. It's, it's just a chemical condition and then the result can be a complete overreaction the other way. But the reality is depression is complex. There's no one reason why someone is depressed. There are all sorts of factors, and they'll vary from person to person. And just as depression is complex, so suffering is complex, so human beings are complex. We've got to be very, very wary about thinking we've got it all sewn up. They lacked reality. We need to be very careful about having a theory. I've read the book. I know this kind of condition, so I can help you. This is your problem. This is the solution. They lacked reality. Second, they lacked humility. They knew it all. When I was a young curate at St. Deb's Oxford, I had a wonderful boss, David Fletcher. I thought I knew it all. I'd just been to college. I uh, I'd understood everything there was to know about how to lead a church. And I thought I owed it to Sir Debs and to David to point out to where sometimes he got things wrong. And so he had the benefit of my wisdom. I was 26 at the time and um, full of maturity, way beyond my years. And um, David, on one occasion, put, put his uh, arm around me. He said, Vaughan, you know I love you very much, don't you? You know I love you very much. In fact, I love you so much that when I retire, I think I'll call my autobiography Curates I Have Served Under. Yes, I think that's what I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll call it. And uh, I was a little slow, and I went away thinking, that's a wonderful compliment. It was only um, a minute or two later that the penny dropped, that that was a very subtle rebuke. I lacked humility. I thought I knew it all. And everything fitted in those tidy theories I'd learned at college. The friends were like that. It didn't occur to them that they might be wrong. They weren't even willing to admit that they might not know it all. They'd worked it out. They had it sewn up. It was pride. It's pride that leads to oversimplistic solutions. The oversimplistic solution of cynicism. We saw that yesterday. That's the, the unbeliever's oversimplistic way of dealing with the problem of suffering. Douglas Adams was a close friend of Richard Dawkins. And he quoted Richard Dawkins once like this. He said, Richard said, I really don't think I'm arrogant, but I do get impatient with people who don't share with me the same humility in front of the facts. As far as he's concerned, the facts are very straightforward. There's a material universe. There's no spiritual realm at all. And therefore, there's no meaning. There's no purpose. And the fact of suffering points to the very obvious conclusion. There is no God. You go to Richard Dawkins and say, Richard Dawkins, could you please answer our question, why? Well, he'd say this, as he has said on one occasion. 
Suppose a child is dying of cancer. We say, why is the child dying? What has it done to deserve it? The answer is, there's no reason. There's no reason other than a series of historical accidents which has led to this child dying of cancer. There's no reason to ask why. When reminded that that's precisely the question that people do ask, his only response was, well, that's their problem. There's no God, so suffering's not a problem. Everything's sewn up. And then religious people choose their tidy neat answer in pride. It's moralism, the overconfident religious response of the comforters. It explains everything. Why is there suffering? Oh, because of sin and God's judgment on sin and on individual sin. Both lack humility. Human reason is limited. We can't work it all out. There's so much more than meets the eye. There's a spiritual realm. The comforters couldn't see what was going on in heaven. They hadn't realized that there was this conversation going on between God and Satan. There's a spiritual realm. There's a devil. There is real evil. And not only can't we see what lies in the spiritual realm, we can't see what lies in the future. They were thinking about everything in terms of this life. But there's a future realm. And yes, it is absolutely true. Bildad got this right. God is absolutely just. Justice will be done. But not always in this life. The Lord Jesus Christ entrusted himself to the one who who judges justly as he endured unjust suffering, says Peter in 1 Peter. And he commends the same approach to the people of God today. And justice will come, not necessarily in this life, but certainly in the life to come. They lacked reality. They lacked humility. And then finally, they lacked sympathy. The impression you get is that they cared more for their theological system than they cared for Job. They came with their prepared speeches. Job responds But what he says makes little or no impression on them at all. They don't engage with what he says. They just repeat the same old lines over and over again. Maybe it's because they had very little experience of suffering. We're not told. But my brothers and sisters, we are broken people in a broken world. Perhaps you've never really experienced suffering. Well, you will. Sometimes it's obvious a huge amount of the suffering that people endure is hidden. And there'll be a huge amount of suffering represented by people in this tent. Depression and anxiety. Loneliness. Maybe a crippling insecurity, so much so that you keep going back over conversations that you've been having. Agonised playing it back and thinking, oh dear, did I really say that? What are they thinking of me? Confusion about gender or sexuality. Grief about a loved one who's died. About a relationship that's ended. About children who've gone off the rails. About an inability to conceive. The gnawing pain of a difficult marriage or unwanted singleness. Deep scars from abuse in childhood or maybe bullying as a kid at school. I've only just begun. There's huge suffering in the world. Are you able to share some of the things that you're grappling with in church? It's a wonderful privilege when someone chooses you to speak to. I assume when someone arrives in church, they've got something that they want to talk to someone about and they're looking around and and, and it's so personal, I don't know who to trust. And then eventually they've trusted you. It's a big moment. And they're really worried. They're vulnerable at that point. How will you respond Please don't blow it at that point. Listen. Listen. That's the first thing. And then resist the temptation to try and fix it as if you've got all the answers. Don't say, oh, I know exactly what you mean because I... Well, you don't necessarily know exactly what they mean. Maybe you've had something vaguely similar... But it's very, very unlikely to be exactly the same. 
And what can be said, sometimes we feel out of our depth, don't we? The pain is so raw. What have I got to say? You cannot go wrong if you point them to Christ. What is God's answer to the question why in the face of human suffering? He doesn't give us all the answers. He sent his son. and There was no lack of reality in him. He entered the real world. He was really human. He really suffered. He really died. He understands. He doesn't enter the world like a president going into some slum area in a limousine and then heading back to the palace. He got dirty. There's no lack of reality. There's no lack of humility. He was in very nature God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or clung onto, but he made himself nothing. He became a man. And he suffered. He died, not just any old death, even death on a cross. And there's no lack of sympathy. He understands. He was alone and misunderstood and despised and faced physical agony. And then he died. God, the God I love and worship, reigns in sorrow on a tree, broken, bloody, but unconquered. Very God of God to me. He's the great comforter. And even though we feel it sometimes, we're not on our own because he sent his Holy Spirit to be with us as the comforter through all the ups and the downs of life. When we feel, what can I say to myself? What can I say to this deeply suffering person? You cannot go wrong if humbly and gently you point them to the Lord Jesus Christ, the great comforter in all our sorrows. Let me pray. Loving Father, we praise you that in the midst of great suffering, you do not leave us, leave us comfortless. But you come yourself into the world in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus, who knows what it is to suffer. And through his death and resurrection is guaranteed that one day all suffering will be ended. Help us to point others to him. And help us by your spirit to trust in him ourselves. For Jesus' sake. Amen. This talk was recorded at Word Alive 2016. Word Alive is here to serve the church in reaching the world. Our desire is to resource individuals and churches and empower them in their mission to communities and the wider world. For further information and to hear more talks from this and previous events, please visit our website at wordaliveevent.org.